Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the BizDoc podcast. We got a bunch going on today. What a busy weekend it was. A lot of interesting stuff going on. Uh, at least we went Friday without any banks dying. That was happening four weeks in a row or a bank saying, oh, I'm not feeling well or a bank dying or a run on the bank. At least we didn't have any of that. We did have the final four get down to the final two. That was pretty good. Uh, and I'm here, as usual, with Kellyanne, the Swiss Army Knife, pulling charts, running clips, watching the chat all the while the biz doc talks. Hello, Kellyanne. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Anything crazy happened this weekend? Nothing crazy. It was just a, it was a nothing happened. That's what was crazy. Well, nothing, nothing happened that you saw, but boy, Sunday ran into Monday with a bunch of stuff going on here, and we have got that right here. We also have a couple Super Chats left, so if you've got questions for the BizDoc, please put them in. Kellyanne's going to pick one or two, I hope two today, that we really think are interesting, would be beneficial to all the rest of the entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and leaders everywhere that we are serving here at Valuetainment, and that yours truly, the BizDoc, wants to leave better than I found them, specifically you, wherever you are, with more knowledge, more insights, and more application off the stuff that everybody else goes through. Mm -hmm. So let's kick off some quick bits and interesting numbers, and let's, along the way, let's look and see what do they mean for us as we run businesses in the engine of America, building jobs, making money, and causing the economy to run. The first thing is um, a million barrels a day. I don't know if you saw that headline this morning, but a million barrels a day. And that is what the Saudis said that they were going to cut from production. And they also got the Russians in on it, too, because remember, Russia has got a lot of natural resources in terms of oil and natural gas. And the Saudis said they were cutting that. And which steps back from assurances that they made to everyone, specifically the United States, a trading partner that said, hey, everything's cool. We're just going to keep supply at a level rate. Well, over the course of the pandemic and the pandemic recovery, what happened to um, oil prices is oil prices, you know, went way down and then have been creeping back up again. And one of the ways that if you are a country that makes a lot of oil, like, oh, Saudi Arabia, you can make the price go up by stopping some of your production, meaning that the price goes up because there's not enough oil out there to make gasoline, diesel fuel, aviation fuel, plastics, and all the things that come out of a barrel of oil when it is refined. And so by cutting your production by a million barrels a day, that's I think half a million for the Saudis and another half a million for the friends of the Saudis that they said, and you, and you, and you, and it came out to a million barrels cut, that means the stock market's probably going to react good because the price of oil is going to go up. But guess what? It could be back to gas prices going up at the pump after several months of it going down. No. So, yeah, I heard no. you. No. Please, no. Yeah, we just, I should have bought a Tesla. You're going to buy a Tesla. Well, you know, that's not a bad idea. But, yeah, uh, I don't know that they're going to spike. But the way it looks right now... Gas at the pump may edge back up again with this cut. You know, and we also have a thing called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and you can Google that later, SPR. And the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is extra raw oil that is held in storage by the United States because it's strategic to our national interest and our economy. It's petroleum oil, and it's a reserve. In other words, we set it on there, kind of like the extra tube of toothpaste you've got that you bought at Costco because you had to buy a three-pack, and you have one of them underneath your sink, that is the strategic toothpaste reserve. Well, this is how we store oil. We store it like that. Except, except, not too many months ago, Biden trying to get the price of gas down last summer. Kellyanne's about to be upset this summer, and she was upset last summer at the price of gas, too. Well, guess what happened? We tapped into the strategic petroleum reserve last summer, and we used a bunch of it out of there to feed ourselves. And so it hasn't been replenished yet. We replenish it by buying oil somewhat inexpensively when the market's down, and we fill it back up. Well, the president used it last year 
to make the price of gas go down in America. That's gasoline, aviation fuel. And if aviation fuel goes down, then so does your ticket on an airline go down, in theory. Well, it was all starting to happen, trying to get some inflation under control. A little bit of success, not a lot, but a little bit. But nonetheless, now you've got, uh, we don't have a choice to do it. Last year, we were doing it because of inflation for political reasons. This year, we're doing it because now somebody has said, I don't want to pump oil and I'm going to pull a million barrels back. So, you know, what's really interesting here. And I was being asked, you know, um, about oil. And they said, well, don't we have oil in the United States? Don't we have oil in the Gulf of Mexico? I see oil derricks there. I go to Houston. I see oil everywhere. You go around Texas, you see oil derricks. Heck, you even see oil derricks in the coast of California and places. And, you know, isn't there always controversy drilling for oil up in, uh, yeah, um, you know, Alaska in Anwar. And also we uh, pull oil out of North Dakota, out of shale. And if you go further north into Alberta, which is Canada, there's also oil sands. So there's a lot of oil in North America. And North America could be a, um, a champion of its own right and be self-sufficient on oil. But that's not the way it works all the time. Anyway, so here we go. Um, and what you can do if you're interested in tracking the price of oil it's called West Texas Intermediate, or WTI. And do we have a chart? I think we have a chart here. Uh, where is it? Where is it? There we go. So here we go, and we can scroll up a little bit so we can see the years there. Yeah, three, two, one. There we go. So you can see in 2022, the price of oil was coming down, but now with the uh, supply being cut, it could go back up. And you can see what happened. There's the COVID pandemic. Everybody's locked down. Nobody's traveling on airplanes. And what happens 2019, 2020? Kawamo! Price of oil spikes down and then goes up, 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 up. All the way back to about $115, $120 a barrel. And now it's been edging down, uh, edging down nicely. So, and we're back at, uh, I think right now we're at something like 78 to 81. But this morning... It popped up five bucks and it's back to 85. And that is a result of what the Saudis just did. So here's a lesson. And, you know, the lesson is, you know, for all of us, we got to track key suppliers. And it might seem to be, you know, plain good logic, but there's a lot more that goes to it. It is a busy time running a business. It is difficult to run a business. And it is distracting to run a business. But at the end of the day, someone has got to be responsible for really monitoring cost of key suppliers. And people say, well, that seems like common sense. BizDoc, well, yeah, it is. But I've talked to a lot of people who have said, well, the price is. We've been doing business with this supplier forever. And the price is what it is. We've been doing business over here. It is what it is. I'm, I'm small. I can't get my hands on these things that I need. It's over here. Well, you know what? There, there is things. But you have to be really proactive because the economy moves so fast now that the lesson, I think, for today's entrepreneurs and today's small companies is, is someone has to be responsible for it. And I'll give you an example. I'm on the board of a, a holding company that is in the music industry. And one of the companies, Walrus Audio, they make pedals. And so everybody in the music industry, and I won't say what they do because a little bit of a, we want to keep our secrets from our competitors, but with the chips price and acquisition of chips difficult, you have to make some steps there to ensure that you have access to chips and they're not expensive. You don't have to pay to FedEx them and all the things that go with that. But if you are proactive, we have found that you can control costs at least a little bit and, and have a little bit of success with it. Even with the headwinds of prices going up and things like that, there's not much you can do about that. And sometimes you just your prices are going to go up a little bit. And sometimes you can't control it. But you always need to be on top of it so that even if you do nothing, you do nothing from a position of full logic, understanding, and fact-based research. So you have to do that to, to get ahead. You know, it's the, um, that's, that's the nature of it. And so when we look down here at the price of petroleum, you know, um, I'll tell you, I have a Fisker Ocean Coming this summer, I've ordered it. I have one of the launch edition, Fisker Ocean 1. Early investors got access to that. And I'll split time between that and the Red Rocket. I'll let you figure out what that means. And, uh, you know, recently, um, the BizDoc's old, 
you know, BizDoc's uh, old. I almost got shot. You're going to hear it when I say it. The BizDoc babe had an older SUV that it was time to, time to turn in. The mileage was there, and we decided when we're going to do it. And we went out looking around, so now she's got a new SUV that's also powered by dead dinosaurs. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to split time between Electric Life with a Fisker Ocean 1, which I'm really looking forward to, and the Red Rocket. And in the meantime, there's a lesson about suppliers because things can happen at a moment's notice. Nobody saw this coming, and it was headlines all over the market today, Saudi's cut in production. And then we work into, <clears throat> let's go into something else here. Um, we were talking about banking, and in the intro when we opened up here, we talked a little bit about the fact that on Friday there was not a bank that had fallen down and burst into flames. That's pretty good. So if we finally had a week like that. But there was something else went up. You know, whenever there's a suspicious fire, like at a warehouse or a business, or even sometimes it's not suspicious, the fire marshal comes out and they do inspections. They do very careful inspections. And they also have insurance companies that send out arson um, researchers to make sure that there was nothing funny going on, burning down a business and then getting the uh, insurance money. So they go out there to look around. Well, and they do these routine inspections, trying to figure it all out. And when it comes to Silicon Valley Bank, there have been a lot of um, inspectors going out there saying, you know, why did we suddenly have this horrible dumpster fire that was Silicon Valley Bank? And guess what? Silicon Valley Bank was public. And on public, you have what's called analysts, tracking analysts. And sometimes you have two, so if you're bigger companies, sometimes you have 11 or more. It turns out there was one, one analyst that was out there that had Silicon Valley Bank on a do not buy, on a sell, a sell rating. And that lonely, brave bear, you know, bulls, they think it's going up, bears, they think it's going down. The brave bear was at Morgan Stanley's, Manan Gosalia. And he went with the sell rating back in December for SVB Financial Group, which was the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank. You know, that took guts, but he was correct. You know, and you sit back and I said to myself, wow, you know, that one analyst was probably getting a lot of grief because there was probably a lot of people out there that were saying, hey, you know, you got the entire venture capital industry. Venture capital just had a great year in 2021. Kind of a softer year as 2022 came to a close when he put the sell um, recommendation on it. Um, you know, why are you doing this? This guy probably took a lot of heat and got a lot of questions, but he stuck to his guns. That is so difficult to do. And when you sit back and think about maybe your life and what you've gone through and what you've done, and maybe there was a time that you had a hunch about something, and maybe that hunch was fact-based and you saw things a little differently, you gotta stick to your guns. Um, this is why you, know, you, you find ways to put yourself in position to win and a lot of times, you just know the playing field a little bit better than the next time. And with these analysts, you know, it takes guts to be the one guy out. And that guy was correct, believe it or not. How often does that happen? Meaning when one analyst seems to see behind the curtain, don't they all follow each other and drink the Kool-Aid together? That is a great question. So she's asking, how often does it happen that you have one lonely analyst you know, don't the analysts kind of follow the herd and drink the Kool-Aid together? The answer is, hell yes. And that's very, very common. Um, and this underlines the difficulty for the retail investors. Retail meaning you and me with an, with an account from any of the small independents, from Robinhood to Charles Schwab and Ameritrade and everything in between. Those are retail trading accounts that you would be with. And this is why the broad index funds usually outperform the market over time. Unless you're Nancy Pelosi's husband, by the way, and you know you seem to be psychic about all of your stock picks and you make a bunch of uh, money on it. <laughs> no, but that, Kellyanne, you're asking a really great question, you know, and the answer is, yeah, generally they do. Yeah. But in this case, there was that one analyst that did. And um, who knows how many people traded on that? Probably yeah. not many because they look at it, oh, I got 13 buys, five neutrals, and one sell. Gosh, who's the oddball? 
And you know what? They always refer to it that as an oddball. Because if the prevailing market is a bull, then you're thinking anybody who's a bear, I mean, what's going on with that? And if the market is bearish and somebody's a bull, oh, they're trying to pump and dump, which is, you know, talk up the stock, see if it goes up, and then sell their positions. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I call this the, the fire marshal visits the what's left of Silicon Valley Bank, and we find one analyst that got it right. So... <laughs> You know, hats off to that analyst. Yeah. And um, and hats off to you if you've stood your ground on a decision for your company and you've gotten a call right, and um, you put yourself in a better position. Next, I found this number I thought was pretty interesting. How much you know psychedelic mushrooms are now also used medically? Are they? Yeah. Gosh. As in the same mushrooms that your aunt and uncle. I'm not picking on her aunt and uncle, but I am. You know, we're, we're dropping when they listen to the Bob Marley tapes back before you were born. <laughs> and that industry is now a $10 billion industry. Holy and cow. they think it's going to be, excuse me, it'll be $10 to $11 billion industry by the end of 27. But wow. it's on its way to being a $10 billion industry. And my understanding is it's got $8 billion in the rearview mirror. Oh, and oh my gosh. I, I looked around and I was like, are you kidding me? Mushrooms is $10 billion business? No way. Good grief. And wow, what a change that is. You know, mushrooms is, you know, I could see if someone said cocaine or marijuana and things like this. I mean, trillion dollar businesses. But little old mushrooms are $11 billion business by the middle of 2027. It's pretty amazing. That's crazy. There's, so I looked it up, and there's a company in the space called Filament Health that says that they can solve, here it is. I like this. They can solve the global mental health with the right drugs. Wow. So you're telling me people that have mental health issues, if you just, uh, we get them some mushrooms, a warm, cozy room, some Grateful Dead CDs and a lava lamp, and maybe they don't bother the rest of us. Or maybe they get through something, PTSD, who knows? But it seems to be, um, seems to be, you know, a growth industry there. But I thought that was shocking. 10 to $11 billion in That's mushrooms. That's insane. Then, the other surprising thing was um, this one, I, I couldn't believe it when I read it. I'm like, are you telling me there's more? There can't be more. But there was more. <clears throat> Remember SBF, <laughs> Sam Bankman-Fried, yep. and the whole thing with FTX and everything he did? Well, this one I call scumbags being scumbags. <clears throat> but this one is so much better at it than we all realize. I feel like every three weeks something comes up with this guy that I'm shocked at. Here's this one. So I was reading over the weekend and Forbes breaks the story. Thank you Forbes for your research. I'm gonna give a little summary. If you wanna read the whole story, go to Forbes website and read it. But SBF is allegedly using some of the funds that he had, and some people are calling those stolen customer funds, and this is why we're going to court, and this is why he's been arrested, and this is why all this stuff is going on, that he gifted to his father through Alameda Research, and therefore, I have him on, by the way, the BizDoc411 articles you can find on valuetainment.com. Every Monday it comes out, I have, and the 411 is four stats, one hero zero, one interesting article, 411. This guy, once again, was my zero of the week. And he's been the zero of the week before. He is wow. the first ever two-time winner of the BizDocs You Are a Zero <laughs> Award. Oh, and here's why. If you read the story, it goes like this. I think you just sniffed into what I'm, I'm tasting here. So Forbes breaks the story, and here's the summary of the key points. Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF, has been paying legal fees apparently through his father, after he gave his father a multi-million dollar gift through Alameda Holding, which was the sister company of FTX. Well, wait a minute. In 2021, while CEO of FTX, he made a large gift to his father, who is Stanford law professor Joseph Bankman. And of course, Sam is Sam Bankman-Fried. And after receiving $10 million from Alameda, Bankman-Fried sent those funds to his father using his lifetime estate and gift tax exemption. 
He sent his father $10 million tax-free, according to what Forbes has found, and that money apparently is being used to pay legal fees. Can you believe that? That's insane. This is, this is just, you know what? I want to know how many celebrity investors know that they're allegedly paying legal bills with their allegedly misappropriated assets, which means their money. And I got to keep saying allegedly because I just want to, I guess there's a law somewhere that has to say, we all have to keep saying allegedly until he is a convicted felon, not just really, 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 really looks like a felon and really suspicion of being the felon. But this is amazing. You know what? If he's using stolen funds, if that's what comes out here, that he took the funds in from people like, oh, Tom Brady, you know, and others, and then routed them to Alameda and then sent $10 million to his dad under a gift. And, and that just shows just the wanton disregard for the law and just ripping off people that you just raise money from. If this is all true, that's what it means. And so if you're sitting there and you're Tom Brady and you're watching this, and if you are, hey, Tom, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but you sit back and look at it. How much worse does it get? You're all waiting to get your funds back. If some of them can be found, there's a bunch of it that have been misappropriated and are out there somewhere and nobody seems to know where they are. And you're, you're actually, your lost dollars are now being used in part to pay the legal fees for the guy that's getting prosecuted by the U.S. government for stealing those lost dollars. Unbelievable. So, you know, I, I look at it this way. By the time this is over, the Scumbag Hall of Fame is going to have a new statue out front. And it's going to be kind of a pudgy guy with wild hair. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you, you know what this takes me back to? You know, I was talking to the BizDoc babe this weekend when I found this. And she said, you know, how many times in our lifetime, because I've been around a little while, um, have you seen like the hot new thing? in venture capital or the hot new company that everyone had to be investing in. And I have never, never, never been one to follow the hot new thing. Even if they're getting traction and going to the moon, I, I can remember these things and I'm gonna share an example, like a little BizDoc case study. Yep, you're gonna get a BizDoc case study in a couple minutes here. <laughs> when, you, when you sell a business or you win the lottery, or your idiot cousin Louie hears you talking at Thanksgiving a little too loud about maybe some, some money you made, let me tell you, your phone's gonna start to ring. And people have an idea and a business plan that they put not a penny in and they want some of your money. Or they want you to invest in a business that they're a part of now. And it's got a few early dollars, but there's no traction yet. I'll tell you, if you're not a professional investor, always hang up. And I'll tell you, when you take a look at some of the celebrity scams that have happened, the celebrities that have money sometimes don't realize how they are being targeted. And if and only if you've got like a hundred grand that you could light and fire in your barbecue, in your backyard, and never miss it between now and the return of Christ or when you die, whichever comes first, if you can't do that, don't put any money into these hot young things. You know, a startup isn't necessarily a hot young thing. Hey, here's a startup that's going to make it easy to get a cab, you know, Lyft. Here's a startup that's going to make it, you know, easier to do this. So they're doing that. And you look at it. And it's rational. And you know the ones I'm talking about. But then you look at these things that are really a little wild and they're a little hot. And those are the ones I just say run from. You know, because you can get into such... A position, especially you know, celebrities. Celebrities, hey, I don't want to be miss this. There's so many other people in it. But even if I was Tom Brady, or even if I was a celebrity, or even if I would had that, you know, just where I come from, it's 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 just it's sketchy. Mm -hmm. So you know what? Know when to fold them, as they say, and know when to hold them. Um, that's that's where I line up on it. But this, I was just shocked to see that legal fees are being used for this, that's, that's shocking. And it would make me even more upset if I was one of the, uh, the investors, people that were completely innocent, trusted this guy, did some of their own research, but found themselves with this hot thing, and then turns out on the flip side of it, it was, it was horrifying yeah. to see what happened. But um, 
anyway, something else, the metaverse. E. And we can see Facebook starting to say things about the metaverse. More importantly, other people are starting to say things about the metaverse. Um, do you remember Kenny Rogers? He was a country singer. Yeah. He had a greatest celebrity beard in history. It was like perfect. <laughs> And then also later in life, he had one of the worst celebrity facelift and eye lifts in history. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he was like this, like he couldn't blink. You know, it was oh, kind of bad. Anyway, he had that song, know when to hold them, know, know when, when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. <laughs> well, apparently it's fold them time, and it's 2008 real estate in the metaverse. Thursday, Friday, and then over the weekend, I was reading coverage that both Disney and Microsoft have shuttered their metaverse projects as the hot tech thing to pour money into shifts from a poorly animated virtual world to now they're going to be putting their money into AI. So they are stopping their metaverse projects. So Disney and Microsoft are saying, done, we're doing it. Wow. And I don't know if Many of the people watching with their independent businesses would be the ones that would be, in, you know, putting a, you know, a, a home builder in Omaha, Nebraska on the metaverse. They probably wouldn't be doing that. Thanks. But nonetheless, you probably read a lot about it. Gosh, what is this? Is it going to be marketing? Going to be things up there? A lot of people think there's nothing there. And you'll love this. Do you know what Decentraland is? Mm -mm. Decentraland is the real estate of the metaverse. Oh. And the sale price of the real estate, because you can buy real estate in the metaverse, it has plunged 90% year over year. 90% oh Kellyanne. Ouch. So if you bought it last time, yeah. it's like plunging. Yeah, that's it's crazy. Like, yep, way down. And if you haven't bought it, you're just getting in it, you're like, well, this doesn't look so expensive to be part of the metaverse. Mm. Well, be careful. There may not be anybody there with you. <laughs> But nonetheless, both one. Disney and Microsoft have said they know when to fold them. And I think there's a lesson for our, ourselves here. If you, when I look at, you know, Disney and Microsoft, I could see them saying, well, if Facebook's going to do it, it's big, there's big audience, there's things like that. But, but this one, the metaverse was never really proven out. There was kind of some skepticism to begin with. And even if you're working for a huge company and you're following something like this, you know, hold my beer usually ends up in pain, whether that's emotional pain, physical pain, or in the case of business, financial pain, because you got to just, as we say with Kenny Rogers, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. And now Disney and Microsoft are doing what I think is the right move. They are saying, we're going to fold them on this. And it, the lesson for us is, you know, sometimes a product isn't working. And you need to have a, a real cogent meeting with that with your team and sit down and say, okay, guys, this is my company. I let us into this. This is the product that we got involved in. We put it together here. Away we go. And um, it hasn't worked out. And so we're going we're gonna to pull the plug on this product. We're pulling the plug on it now. If a product isn't working, you got to kill it. This is part of leadership. And this is a lesson for us. When you step back, if you are running a home builder in Omaha, Nebraska, and there's some things that you've been working on, and you may say to yourself, you know what, we're not gonna do that anymore. We tried that, we're not gonna do it. Don't let the ego carry you. Don't let the ego carry you to the point of financial pain. If an employee isn't working, say goodbye. Sometimes you just need permission in this day and age to say it, to say goodbye. Um, you know, and I had a really good lunch one time with a friend of mine back in Dallas. And we were talking about making decisions to do things. And he said, sometimes you just need to look at a friend and say, what are you waiting for? You have permission to pull the plug on the product to you know, terminate that employee. What are you waiting for? Well, I believed in it. Maybe another week, maybe another month. And the answer is no. Sometimes you just got to know when to fold them. And now Disney and Microsoft are folding them on Metaverse. And that's a lesson for us. Just move on to the next thing and get out of your own way. And as we come from, you know, I realize as we're talking about FTX and metaverse, we're talking about new, highly unusual things that, that are new shiny objects. There was a time when there were businesses that were new that wasn't. And I'd like to talk 
about real quick, kind of go back and do a case study on pets.com because sometimes a, a business that sounds completely rational has got some underlying issues with it and those fold too. So don't think that I'm just saying, hey, it's only the hot, you know, kind of super shiny object companies in edgy new sectors that fail. Sometimes others fail too, and they fail for reasons that are in plain sight. So I'm gonna take you back about 22, 22, 23 years. November 9th, 2000, and that's when pets.com became the poster child of what you probably hear about in history as the dot-com era. The dot-com era is where everything was gonna be a dot-com, and some of them are really sensible, like Netflix. Really, I don't have to turn in the DVD, I can just watch it online. There is a, that's an amazing dot-com story. Probably the biggest dot-com story of all is Amazon, of all the things that it's influenced in life. <clears throat> and so pets.com went spectacularly from IPO to bankruptcy in like nine and a half, 10 months. That's right, from IPO, we're gonna come to the dot-com and order all this stuff for your pets and everything and you can get toys and stuff. Well, part of the other problem was they were also gonna be shipping dog food. Have you been to the store and bought dog food? Sure. You know where the big bags of dog food are? Yeah. They're like right by the cash registers. Yeah. And then you say, and I'm gonna get the green super diet, 20 pound of this, and they go over and they scan it, mm -hmm. right? And then you pick it up. And the reason they're there is why? Because they're Cause heavy. The, they're they're big and heavy. Yeah. So part of pets.com was, hey, we'll just deliver it to your door. And it's like, anybody talk to UPS what it's gonna cost to ship a uh, bag of dog food? Yeah. I mean, that's. That was something, and that was one of the flaws of the model. But anyway, it was one of the quickest bankruptcies in history. And they went public, they raised $82.5 million in February, um, and then that was about $11 a share, and then at 22 cents a share, 22 cents, in other words, barely alive, there's a flat line, 22 cents, not even a quarter, trading for less than a quarter per share, oh, gosh. it, goes bankrupt and they're like we burned through all of our money we're out of money no one's willing to help us raise any more money and people are like you're not gonna you're not gonna mail 30 pound bags of dog food Yikes. and um interesting jeff bezos had a massive stake in it now but that's because he had the money to lose and he was betting on maybe people will buy them this way and what did he do remember he bought what did he buy did he buy baby.com or diapers.com? Can you look that up? But he bought one of those um, at some point in time. Look at this, make sure I get it. Because he bought a bunch of things. Like, like what a, was it, like baby.com? Baby.com baby. Oh, baby or diapers.com? Uh, diapers.com. Diapers.com. And so he bought that because, hey, I'm gonna add that. Hey, they proved it worked. I'm buying it and now that's available through Amazon. And they also did the Toys R Us thing where they were powering things for Toys R Us. Yeah. And later they were like, nah, we'll just work directly with Mattel and we'll ship it to you. And so they stopped working directly with Toys R Us. And that's an example of Amazon's massive market leverage. But anyway, so maybe, maybe he was dazzled by, they had a sock puppet. They had a little mascot like a sock puppet. Pets.com? Yep, and they also had a Thanksgiving Day parade where they had their, one of the things for the Macy's parade was the little sock puppet mascot. No way. And, um, and they also had a Super Bowl ad. So you wanna talk about, they did it all in nine months. It's, it's kinda like your, your Uncle Fred, who's diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he says, you know what, we gotta hit everything on my bucket list. Yeah. Where do you wanna go? I wanna go to the Grand Canyon. Okay, we're going to the Grand Canyon. Where else do you wanna go? Oh, I wanna go see the White House. And you just make the whole list up for Uncle Fred. Nothing, I'm not gonna go there. But you want everything that <laughs> Uncle Fred wants to do, where he wants to go see. You know, I, you know, you know, my niece is gonna graduate from high school. I wanna be there. Even if I'm on a stretcher, I wanna be there. Going through a bucket list. Well, nine months, this company wow. went through like the bucket list of, hey, we had a Super Bowl ad. We had a float in the Macy's parade. We had a massive IPO. We had a giant party. There was all this stuff going on. And then, tragically, they crash and burn. Oh, gosh. And that's just to show you that um, you don't have to be the hot young thing to 
to, to flame out, you can be something there. So that's just like a old-fashioned biz.case case study on this. And now, you know what's really interesting to me? Hmm. Chewy.com. Yeah, I was just thinking about 20 that. 20 years later, but we're also li living in a another world. Yes. There's another world we live in. Especially And the world we live in now is the world of Amazon Prime. Yep. And a lot more um, retail problems. Mm -hmm. Bed, bath, and beyond, right? Nightmare. And they have, they've gone to somewhere beyond. <laughs> you know, who knows where they've gone. But, um, you know, they're closing stores. Yep. You know, <clears throat> um, yep. bed, bath, and be gone. <laughs> <laughs> so they are bed, oh, bath, boy. and be gone. So, but there's been a lot of retail that's crashed. Yeah. And so now, maybe Chewy's works because there's less retail, you know, in certain cities to buy your pet stuff. So you buy the chew toys and uh, you can get medicine and everything for your, I think your, you're right. your dog and cat that way. Maybe. Don't know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, but I do want to, before we go in talking about funding and fundraising, let's go show the sharp. This is where pets.com jumps the shark. So this is the chart and the shark. Almost as I said charted. That's something else, though. But there you go. <laughs> pets.com following their IPO. Look at this. They drop down immediately. They briefly have a spike up. And then it's the roller coaster ride to hell. Oh, gosh. Ending at 22 cents a share when they declare bankruptcy. So that's that. So there you go. So whether you're something interesting like pets.com or you're something uh, you know interesting and and predictable okay i see what the, i say that could work or you're something like hey you know it's uh it's bitcoin it's a trading exchange what's an exchange you know that's a little bit more out there so now let's talk about um fundraising and because i keep getting emails from people that say hey bizdoc you know is now the time to be raising money i really appreciate what you said but is now the time to be raising money? Well, I'm gonna teach you about something, if you don't know already. <clears throat> it's called the VIX. And can we find the chart for the VIX and put it up, and when it's up, tell me when it's up. Uh, got it. Okay, are they looking at it? Yes. Yep, beautiful. Okay, for those of you that are watching at home, uh, the VIX chart is up, and if you're in your car driving or listening, this is a chart showing volatility in the market. And it basically is a line that just goes, a little line chart that bounces up and down through life. And we're looking at this starting in 2018, going all the way to the end of 2022, to where we are now, first quarter of 23. And from 2018 all the way to the end of 19, except for a little spike in the middle there, the VIX was hanging around 15, 18 to 20. And that's because the VIX is a measure of volatility. And the volatility is one of the measures they use to see is the market in a good place for IPOs. So right now, IPOs, um, if you looked at 18 to 19, when the VIX is under 20, they say, hey, that's usually a green light. It means that the market volatility is low. So if you go out on the stock market and your brand new stock is out there, okay, the volatility is, the wind is favorable to go sailing on IPO Lake. Now, but when that, when the VIX goes up above 20 or it spikes, that is a sign of market instability. And it could be something innocuous like, oh, the whole banking industry is feeling sick and four banks have had problems over the last four weeks. I'm being very sarcastic. <clears throat> that's not hardly innocuous, that's pretty serious. And you can see here, when COVID happened and the market dropped down so radically, the VIX shot up like an elevator all the way to 65. No one I know uh, can remember it spiking like that to 65. Well, that was the sudden COVID market crash. So the market is crashing and the VIX measure of volatility shoots up. Think of that like a fever. The market's not feeling well, and the fever is high. So then it settles back down, and it sat above 20 for most of the pandemic. And just now, we're getting a little wink at 21.22. And the question is, are we at a place with the VIX where maybe we're going to see some IPOs come out this uh, year if the... Um, 
if they can get out and they're good, strong IPO candidates, um, maybe. But this is also related um, to the venture side because I've seen, you know, the venture group kind of feel similarly about general investing. There will always be, you know, uh, a sector that venture usually is feeling pretty good about it. And regardless of the market, they're willing to invest in that. And many of them are following each other investing. Maybe a new sector that's proving to be interesting and proving to get some traction. So everybody's in. And it doesn't matter what the VIX and the market are doing. But generally, the VIX shows the mood of, of things. And again, a VIX over 20 is a green light for IPOs. A VIX under 20, excuse me, under 20 is a green light for IPOs. 2530 is a yellow light, and anything over that is like a big time red light. And so this is something I think it's always interesting to pay attention to. So even if you haven't been paying attention to it, watch the VIX. It'll also help you understand what's going on in terms of market volatility and give you a little barometer of what the market is feeling. So when people say it's a bear market or a bull market, you can gather information from people that you may trust, columns, read as much as you can. And then also consider the VIX. Add this to you know, what you're looking at. So raising money is never easy. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Because the other side of raising it is from independent investors. And I want to spend the last segment here, about 10 minutes, and, and talk about you know, uh, people are asking, is the deck you put out or the presentation you make different <clears throat> when the economy is down than when the economy is up? And I said, that is really a great question. So would I have different things in my investment deck and in, the, in my narrative where I'm pitching within 15 minutes, you know, make it crisp, you know, the biz docs rule for this, pitch it in 15, Q&A for 15, and you should be able to explain anything in a half hour. And then have a whole other half hour for whatever else Q&A you want. But if someone's just giving you a half hour, 15 and 15. But does that change it when the uh, economy is in a tough place? Well, not really. And I want to I walk through this real quick. So I've always said <clears throat> that here's the flow. Um, the flow is, you know, you tell people what you're going to do. You make sure there's credibility for you. Why are you doing this? You move into... Customers have the current problem. You know, if they were to fix this or address it today, they would do these things. But what if they did this instead? That's us. That's our idea. And our dream is to build a company that does this. Here's the money I've invested. Here's the traction. And let me tell you how and where we found that money in this market. In a tough market, it's all the more important to show that you had disciplined savings or that you had friends and family that have money they could afford to invest because it will impress investors that during a down market, you were able to reach into your own pocket because you were prudent and find some friends and family that made an investment. That in a down market is to be amplified because that means even in a down market, you were able to go out and sell yourself. And then from that little narrative I gave you and you say, this is how we've raised money, and rolling people through a, a very quick demo that says, this is why we think our approach is so sensible. And this is the trends that we think that we can follow. Or this is what we're going to introduce people to for the first time, like Lyft, you know, independent people using their own car to be a taxi and other people finding it on an, on an app. And then, you know, talking a little bit about why has no one thought of it until now? Why has nobody done anything till now? And what are the competitors out there? And then roll into, okay, well, why you? This may all be true, but why are you and these folks that you're with, why are you the people to do this? And if I give you this, some investment, where are you going to be in a year or two years from now? And that's it. And so I think the, the narrative is the same. And by the way, if you want to know more about that narrative and want to work with me directly of it, I work directly, and so you can find me on Minect, which is a great app that came out of Valuetainment, uh, M-I-N-N-E-C-T for Android and iOS. You can find me. You can find Patrick Bet David in there. Use it. Do you have a minute? Let's connect. Minect. 
and I could talk to you for 15 minutes about it on a live video chat. And if there's something there, then we can talk about engagement where I can walk you through, you know, your elevator pitch, your deck, and, and take you onto it. But the answer to the question straightforward is, no, there's really not a difference, you know, between a tough economy and a good economy, except emphasizing how efficient you're going to be with your capital and how hard you have worked to secure that capital is usually something that during a tough economy that impresses the investors. But more impressive, a good product with traction, with you and a team that they can believe in because they're banking on you more than anything else, more than the market, more than the product themselves. Are you the one that can pull this off? And that's, uh, and that's my two cents about that. But that's a really good question. What else do we have? Got a couple of questions in the chat for you. This is the first one up. From RC. Thank you, RC. Would deposit insurance policies for depositors with amounts in excess of the FDIC 250000 permanently solve the bank run dilemma? No, I, I don't think so. And here's why. The... The issues I think you're going to find is, are they running a good bank or not? Are they balanced in their approach to risk or not? And we can see Silicon Valley Bank having deposit depositors insured all the way up maybe would have made Silicon Valley Bank even more risky. Because remember, they took risk buying bonds, and then the market in interest rates changed, and those bonds were underwater. That has nothing to do with the insurance that the federal government gives to depositors. If the federal government was to say infinite insurance for depositors, part of what could happen there is that the banks could be more irresponsible. Hey, screw it. You know, we may get sued by investors, but we're not going to get sued by the depositors because the federal government is going to protect all their money. That's actually a way to have a moral hazard and an unintended consequence. So I don't think the answer is that. I think the answer is maybe closer examination of the ratio analysis that they put on banks to determine their um, creditworthiness and health. And there's a lot of ways you can do that without choking the banks. There have been regulations that were out there that were actually worked well for big banks, but actually would choke little banks and were unnecessary when you step back and look at the little bank and look at what their risk profile was. <clears throat> so I don't, I don't think the... Um, Raising FDIC would help. It might help you and me feel good, but it also may have the unintended consequences of banks are just more fearless about behaving ba badly. And um, that's not one that uh, I think I want to incentivize. There's a couple ben. more. A couple more. Uh, this one's from Kronslifter. Okay. We have this one. Do we have another one? Yeah, we do. We've got this one as well. That's an interesting one, asking about oil. Um, appreciate my thoughts. I kind of gave my thoughts at the, at the beginning on oil. Um, yeah, let's pop back one. Okay. One more. These are really good questions, by the way. Yeah, do, do, you think, do you think banks would have been handled differently under different administration? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think at the time of the crisis, I don't think so. But do I think that the outcome right now with the regulations is going to be the same? No, I think administrations would be handling it, handling it a little differently. And let's go one more to a guy with small business talking about investment. Okay, I took BizOx advice, credit union for small business and large bank for personal What's his advice for building a business versus real estate with these interest rates? Where and how to leverage? You know what? I would say one thing right now. I am not an expert on CRE, commercial real estate, but I've seen a lot of things on commercial real estate that say that that is a very tough place to be right now. And if you're not in a, a REIT that has impeccable track record, I'm not sure that I would play in commercial real estate here. And if you're building a business with real estate um, uh, rentals, 
hey, if you've got the money and you're in a market where you can do a simple analysis, what do people pay rent right now? Now back up a couple years. What were they paying rent a couple years ago? Let's take a look at that. So what if, if, what if disinflation happens and actually rents go down? Then say, if I bought that house with this interest rate, here's my cost. And plus my property tax, plus my homeowner's insurance, plus any HOA, plus a maintenance reserve. Okay, that's what I need. And over here, how much can I get for rental? And if it pencils out with the rents that are in residential going back a couple years, I think maybe you could find some opportunities in residential real estate and pick up a rental or two, or get involved with people who have a, a good track record and do that. But these interest rates, probably gonna be difficult unless you've got a, a good amount of, uh, of capital to put down on those homes. In a lot of markets, um, homes are still you know, uh, expensive versus uh, the end of 2021. That's the situation here in South Florida. That's not the situation in San Diego, San Jose, in Phoenix that have all seen prices come down. So I think it's the rental math on real estate, but you gotta make sure you can make it work with that interest rate. But that's, um, that's there. Any other questions? Um, one more just asked a question, Nash Fong. What is your brief take on the guitar manufacturing industry? Are there any similarities to its direction and what you find being on the board of Walrus? Well, <clears throat> I think um, the music industry, I like the music industry. You know, uh, Do I know if it's going to grow 5% or 7% or just be flat next year? No, but it's a, uh, you know, I happen to like the industry. You know, I, I am not invested in public companies in the music industry because I've seen a little bit of a pullback on the stocks of a lot of leisure following the spike of spend that was happening in 2001, even early 2002. But all I can say is I like the music industry and um, I think more people should play guitars and play loud. And if you're playing, I hope you're using a walrus pedal. You know, I can, I can say that much. And so I'm probably going to take heat from that. People say I'm, I'm dodging and pimping. I'm, I'm not no, really. No, no. Even though I kind of am. Yep. Somebody wants you to do a case study on the Raiders. Fishing Pete wants you to do a case study on the Raiders. He was already a big fan, but became an even bigger fan once he found <clears throat> out you were too. A case study on Raider Nation. I'll tell you. <laughs> I don't know if there's enough, enough case study um, time in the world to do that. Maybe at one point I'll do a case study on the the history of the Raiders. They come from a really rich history and it was, it's really great to be a Raider fan and look back and to see how, once upon a time, how Al Davis influenced the development of the NFL, had won some Super Bowls, um, haven't been there since uh, John Gruden switched teams and then we got our butt, butt kicked by John Gruden's other team in Tampa Bay. But um, I'll tell you, um, uh, there, there is a rich history, I think, and a positive influence that was had on the NFL by Al Davis back in the day. But obviously, since then, there have been some very interesting characters wear the silver and black. Bizdock never wore silver and black. I had my jersey, I had my Rod Martin jersey, <laughs> but, um, and my Blintnikoff jersey, but, and, uh, but I was never wearing silver spikes in the, in the makeup at the games. You know, maybe if I was much, much, much younger and a little bit more inebriated, maybe if mushrooms were legal back then, oh, maybe gosh. I would have been on some other planet and I would have been there with the rest of them. But anyway. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. That is us this week. And if you, you know, are looking for content and you're looking for a lot of things to support your business, valuetainment.com, all kinds of content there, as well as the library of biz.case case studies and how-tos from Patrick Bet David, a lot of things to help you and your business get better. And until next time, from the BizDoc Podcast, I'm Tom Elser with the BizDoc, and I hope I lived you better than I found you. <laughs>